You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 31, How Imagination Can Make You Happy or Miserable. When most people think of imagination, they tend to think of children making forts in the living room, or in my case, my kids playing with their dolls, or I've heard of little boys that, you know, imagine army men shooting up others. But not all imagination is something that makes us happy or is involved really in play behavior. And today we're going to talk to Jim about how imagination can make you happier, but also how it can make you miserable. So Jim, most people think that imagination is a good thing and they like to have more of it, right? Yeah, that's true. In English, we use the word imagination in basically two different ways. One of them is general creativity. So when people say, uh, I have a lot of imagination or she has no imagination, uh, they're talking about creativity, really. But we also use the word when we're just uh, imagining something in our head, even with no creativity involved at all. So if I were to ask you, for example, to imagine your living room uh, as realistically as possible, you're not really trying to be creative. You're just trying to do it realistically. But we still uh, call it imagination. So according to you, or what exactly is imagination? Yeah, it's a little hard to define um, because it might capture too much and or not everything you want. But uh, I like to say it's the creation of some kind of a scenario in your head. Uh, and it might be realistically remembering something or it might be creating something brand new. And so, you know, I introduced this. We're going to be talking about how some people are going to use their imagination to make them happier. Can you talk our listeners through that? Like, what are some of the ways in which we can make ourselves happier? So uh, fantasizing is one uh, way that everybody's probably familiar with. So people will engage in fantasies, romantic fantasies, or uh, fantasies of um, achievement or something like that. And the reason people do it is because it's Uh, It does bring pleasure, right? So um, a lot of your mind responds to the imagination in a way that is somewhat similar to the way you would respond to it if it were really happening to you. Um, So, you know, somebody could just be like lying in bed and fantasizing about being on a beach or taking a vacation. Um, And uh, it's like a virtual experience. And, uh, you know, when we think about a virtual experience that is that would make us happy, then we actually get happy just thinking about it. I feel like I should know the answer to this question, but do you know if the areas of the brain that would be activated when you're actually engaging in, say, eating a tasty meal are also activated when you're imagining eating that tasty meal? So the sensory uh, areas um, do get similarly activated during imagination. Uh, And some theories of imagination hold that you're actually recruiting those sensory areas to be able to do it at all. I'm wondering more about like the reward circuits. Oh, yeah, that's the same. Same as what? Same, oh, same, same like uh, if you um, get rewarded by imagining something great happening to you versus it actually happening to you. So there are studies to show that if you imagine something rewarding, it activates the, these pathways or circuits to the same extent? I mean, it wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say that it's the same extent, but uh, to the extent that you actually are rewarded, I would say it is the same extent to which the reward circuits are implicated. Interesting, interesting. So one could then extend that to say you are actually feeling reward. Oh, yes, yeah. And Mm -hmm. you can can condition yourself with imagination, Hmm. right? So if you um, uh, imagine um, uh, like an association, like let's say you eat too much, you know, um, peanut butter cups or something, you know, and you regularly imagine 
you know, mm. peanut butter cups, you know, being delivered by slaves or <laughs> I don't know, something like really disturbing. <laughs> you know, you can build up associations that will, you know, change your conditioning hmm. uh, just just through what you imagine. Now, I I do like you know, when I could take holidays. Now we're if, if you're listening to this sometime in the future, we're we're recording this in the middle of COVID and and really shouldn't be traveling. Um, but I, you know, you know, when I've planned vacations in the past, I li- I do like I enjoy that experience of thinking about it, mm-hmm. sort of that looking forward. Is mm-hmm. it possible to fantasize too much? Yes. Um, now th- with the. Uh, with, with the example that you gave, the danger is that you could build it up a little bit too much in your head. Um, so, you know, fantasizing a little bit about something that is upcoming uh, is generally good for your happiness. But if you build it up too much, then uh, you can be disappointed with the actual experience. So you got to be careful with that. But there, an in, even more interesting case of fantasizing too much is uh, there are some people who fantasize kind of compulsively. Uh, now, this is not in the diagnostic manual uh, that psychologists use to diagnose mental illnesses, but uh, there is a disorder that is rising in aware- people's awareness. Uh, it's typically called maladaptive daydreaming. Um, another term that's been suggested, I think is a better term, is compulsive fantasizing. But these people, they just spend an enormous amount of time fantasizing, like so much that it, it interferes with their life. So, like... Can you give us more? This is honestly the first time I've heard of this. What does it mean? <laughs> well, uh, they, it's it's they describe it kind of like an addiction or a compulsion. Um, but the thing that they're addicted to is always available, and so that's really difficult uh-huh. because they just they're just addicted to their own fantasies. So um, so nice people will um, just lie there and fantasize for hours or or an entire weekend. Uh, people have reported canceling social engagements so they can just lie there and and engage in their fantasy. Um, and one time I actually talked to, uh, I talked about this in a class I was teaching and a student came up to me and said that he had this problem. And, uh, and I said, oh, this is before my book was published, uh, on imagination. And I wanted to interview him for my book and I asked him and he agreed. Uh, and he, you know, he came in and, and, uh, talked about his experience and how he like learned to deal with it. This is fascinating. So he identified that he, he actually, this was problematic. So it was interfering with his day-to-day life. Yes. And my class was the first time he'd heard that it was actually a thing, I think, um, um, you know, but he, he had to deal with it on his own because um, the, he'd like tried to go to therapy, but the therapists weren't uh, much help. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, it, like you said, if it's not characterized in the DSM or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that diagnostic Bible that most um, psychologists and therapists use, if it's not in there, it may well not be recognized by the broader community, so they may not know how to treat it. But as you say, it sounds similarly similar to an addiction, like these compulsive um, activities. Yeah. Right. So, so the therapist would just say, "Oh, everybody fantasizes; nothing to worry about." But you know, he would say, "No, no, really. Like this is. Huh. I'm telling you, it's interfering with my life." <laughs> so how did how did he how did he deal with it? Did he have to develop his own strategies? He did. He did. And some of the things he did are kind of disturbing. So th- so just imagine what the problem is. So, well, the way he described his problem was that it was like a really great TV show was always playing in his peripheral vision. So he wow. would have these fantasies that he would be in these big adventures, you know, like or he might watch uh, Mission Impossible and then have some riffing on that where he's the protagonist. And and it was very easy to engage in. And it was very a very compelling 
experience, right? And he said it was just sort of always going on in the background and all he had to do was attend to it and he would be like really entertained. So it was very hard for him to concentrate on anything like studying or anything else. So one one thing he did was he tried to just tried to experience what it would be like to not pay attention to the fantasies by engaging in really dangerous activities. So he would he worked on some oil rigs. Wow. Um he he uh you know did um what else did he do extreme sports like you know uh, dangerous stuff because that was enough to jolt him out of the fantasy you know to get him to not pay attention to the fantasy and he said that having those experiences let him know what it was like to not pay attention to the fantasy and then he was better able to try to recreate that when he like needed to concentrate in a lecture or something like that hmm that's wild yeah yeah um was he like 20s was he yeah he was a university age student yeah um and even like playing basketball he would just like space out and start watching his fantasy and everyone would be like hey dude wow you know, eye on the ball and he would just forget that he was playing basketball basically just stand there and fantasize <laughs> i mean it's yeah it's really like if if you're interested in this you can watch uh watch on youtube there are tons of people talking about their maladaptive daydreaming and what it's like to have it okay. it's very interesting um have has anyone put people in a scanner while they're in this daydream world? Um, like a brain scanner, fMRI, PET, just to see okay, activity. So, so I uh, I don't think that anyone has looked at brain activity for people who have a problem with it. Mm. Um, uh, but it, it appears to be normal fantasizing that is done too much right yeah so, it's an extreme so yeah. right right yeah i mean i guess what you you might predict kim is that not only are they engaging in um maybe default mode network and mm -hmm. um visual areas and all that but also maybe some of the stuff that you see in addictive behaviors mm -hmm. right yeah, which yeah. might that might distinguish them from um right when when a normal person or a healthy person is is uh day, just daydreaming and it's not a problem it might not be as compulsive Right. But I mean, when people, you know, when you think about compulsive daydreaming, though, um, sometimes uh, I think a lot of people can relate to something disturbing. Like they think, oh, God, wouldn't it be terrible if this happened? And they and they can't yeah. stop their mind from daydreaming about it. It's kind of it's kind of like it's kind of compulsive, too, you know? Yeah. And people have to train not to focus on the wrong things. You know? Well, you're getting flooded with adrenaline in addition to mm -hmm. um, potentially cortisol. Right. So the two stress hormones. And then if you're also getting this like rush of dopamine or endorphins in the brain, it can be very compelling and lead to compulsive behaviors. Even like some people would say they're addicted to fear, right? People watching like horror movies and stuff. Right. So when they're saying they're addicted to fear, um, what they're probably addicted to is their response to fear. Would yeah. You, right. Does that make sense? Right. Yes. Like the yes. endorphins. I mean, it's kind of yes. like tattoos. Like. Yeah. They like the pain because of the response to the pain, which is mm -hmm. the body's natural endorphins. Like endor yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what about a normal amount of fantasy? Is I'm assuming there's nothing wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that? Uh well, even a moderate amount of fantasy is generally uh okay, but some you know sometimes it's not good for you, depending on how you use it. So because imagination is uh so broad, like you can imagine you know, just about anything, uh, and your mind responds to it in a way that's similar to the way it responds to actual experience, you know, you can 
uh, do good for yourself and bad for yourself. But even even like fantasy things, things that make you feel good in the moment, aren't always good for you in the in the the long term. Um, so one thing is that um, when you imagine goal achievement, uh, like you fantasize about like oh what if you know what if um, I get to work and everyone gives me the uh, employee of the month award or something like that and you and you like bask in the glory in your imagination of how great it would be um it can inhibit activities that would help you achieve that goal what do you mean so um when you fantasize the reason it feels good the reason you fantasize is because it feels good right mm. and and it's activating uh the pleasure and the and the uh, reward circuits of your brain um that normally get activated when you actually achieve something in the world so if you imagine achievement, you are feeling some of the good feeling that you would get if you actually achieved it without achieving it. You're kind of cheating your brain a little bit into <laughs> thinking that you've done something when you actually haven't. And the theory goes that if, if this happens, then you are, your motivation to do it, to, to, to work on that project, is actually sapped a little bit. Um, so they find, um, uh, they did a study where they had students imagine getting a good grade on a test really vividly, and they had other students imagine other things. And the students who imagined doing really well on the test uh, actually did worse on the test than the student than the controls. But isn't this counter to that advice about visualizing goal achievement? You know, like you hear about all these like mantras, you know, imagine your goal, you'll be there. Imagine a big mountain and somebody at the bottom of the mountain, sun shining, you know, like you can see. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's tons of advice yeah. like that out there. And, and I think it's all wrong. <laughs> uh, I, th I think it's I think it's hurting. Say it people. like it is, Jim. <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, there's something out there. There's an idea out there called the law of attraction, and it suggests that if you visualize your goal achievement, the world will mm, kind of conspire to make those things happen. Right? It'll, it'll manifest your goals, and it's kind of a, a religious, mystical idea that the universe is going to make things happen because of uh, your uh, imagining things. But uh, it is it is absolutely not true. Um, so the studies that I'm familiar with, um, and I did a pretty uh, deep dive into this when I was uh, researching for my imagination book, shows that it's it is counterproductive. Wow. Well, they're going to make a lot of people really unhappy. <laughs> well, I'm about to give them a, I'm about to give them a better solution that is supported by science. Okay. So <laughs> here we go. What what is the way? to use your imagination to help achieve your goals. Yeah, instead of imagining goal achievement, which is the end mm -hmm. state and, mm -hmm. you know, how you feel afterward, you're supposed to imagine um, the uh, the things you would do to achieve the goal, all right, mm -hmm. and, and sort of make policies for yourself. So let's just take the studying example. <clears throat> in, the, in that example with studying, that study, what they did was they had students, one group of students imagine goal achievement, which is getting a good grade, they had other they had control students, and then they had students imagining studying. Like they're imagining things like, okay, uh, even if my friends ask me to go out drinking, I'm going to stay home and study. Even if it's hard and boring, I'm going to study. And sort of like making policies in their head, like if if I'm put in this situation, this is what I'm going to do. And it wasn't particular. It wasn't fantasizing, right? Because there's nothing really super pleasurable about thinking, oh, if my friends want to go out, I'm going to stay home and study, unless it's for one of our classes. Um, so the you know, that actually worked. Those students did better than the controls, right? So the worst student, the, the people who did worst on the test were the fantasizers. Uh, the controls were in the middle and the people who uh, fantasized about, or not fantasized, but daydreamed about studying 
Hmm. They actually did the best. So what you should think about is, like, if you want to write a book, don't think about how great it would be to have the book done. Think, I'm going to write every day. Every mm. morning, I'm going to sit at the computer and I'm going to write. And, and imagining that stuff does facilitate goal achievement because it it makes you more likely to engage in the behaviors that would make the goal occur. And also imagining the potential obstacles and how you might tackle them. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so making making policies in your head, and I think you know this is related to um, you know when we I think we've talked about habit stuff before, where you, you say like. Uh, um, every, you know, oh, in the morning I'm going to, you know, when I get when I get hungry I'm going to take a run or have a drink of water or something like that, and it makes the decision making a little bit easier. You're a little less tempted if you've sort of put a policy in place and sort of committed to it beforehand. Now this is, you know, I, I try to practice gratitude on a daily basis, and I'm trying to get my kids to be to practice the reflective gratitude, and you know, thinking of like. As at the end of mm-hmm. every day, you know, what, what things am I grateful for? Would you consider that gratitude is using your imagination to think about things that are good in your life? Yes, usually uh, it is. Um, I think that there can be varying levels of vividness to imagining about your gratitude. You can, I mean, yeah, I think you can think very coolly about, oh, I've got enough food. I'm happy for that. Or, you know, I'm grateful for that. That's kind of different from... Imagining all the people who don't have food, imagining the gnawing feeling of starvation if you didn't have enough food. That's <laughs> even more vivid. Um, but there is some evidence that when you exercise your gratitude, uh, that can make you a little bit happier. The studies I've seen have used something called gratitude journaling. Uh, this is usually when you're asked every night to write down five things you're thankful for that day. Um, but they are not very large effects, so I wouldn't count on it as sort of the uh, the one thing you're doing to be happier. Um, and also, there's a problem of habituation. So uh, what that means is that um, as you the more you engage in gratitude exercises, the less effect it has on you. So it's like diminishing returns. So uh, I would recommend doing them kind of once in a while, maybe as needed. So mm. if you're feeling bad that day, maybe do the gratitude exercise mm. that night. But if you do it every single day, you're probably going to start repeating yourself and it'll just yeah. be less impactful when you think about, oh, I got enough food, same as yesterday. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, I I hear you. It's it's hard to think more granularly. Um, you know, I tend to, my go-to, like I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful for my husband. I'm grateful for my kids. But sometimes it's like, I'm grateful for a comfortable chair or I'm grateful that this pen that I'm using to take notes um, makes my writing look pretty. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and that, that's cr- and I think like I don't I, I I don't really know of any data on this, but it seems like even focusing on little things is probably just as good as the big mm. things, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and this yeah. and this is also where you can use your creativity, right? Be, I mm. mean, like being grateful for your health and your family and whatever that that's like the stuff that everybody thinks of. But like you could really use your imagination to be like, oh, I'm really grateful that. I didn't have a grandmother who would secretly beat me when I was a kid. Oh, my goodness, or, Jim. <laughs> I'm really grateful that I wasn't bitten by a dog to give, when I was a kid to give me fear of dogs for the rest right. of my life. Yeah. Like, you can use your imagination to think of, like, awful things that didn't happen to you yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. and be grateful for those, too. Oh, my know? goodness. Now, I'm going to ask you this question that I've been, I've been wanting to ask you. I... Anybody that knows me knows I love animals. I'm a, I'm, you know, I think my alternative career could have been anything to do with biology or zoology. Um, 
And I have kind of a side interest in comparative biology and comparative uh-huh. cognition. So in your opinion, or based on what you know, do animals have imagination? Animals, that's a good, why do you, why are you asking about animals? Well, um, something that I, you know, one of my kind of catch uh, phrases as I talk about the prefrontal cortex mm. uh, as our time traveling device, right? The, 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 right. Uh, the frontal lobe more so, allows us to travel in time, right? So um, the the benefit of the frontal lobes is it allows us to plan for the future, right? Based on what happened in the past. Um, but right. some argue, you know, some psych- psych- scholars argue that anxiety and depression are the price that we pay for having this beautiful, big frontal uh, lobe, right? So right. it's allowing us to time travel to plan um, more to like where to get food and where to find a sexual mate, right? So it's highly mm. adaptive. But then we can think also about not getting food in the future and uh, what happened when we didn't get food or that, you know? So um, these right. these states are are really related about things happening in the past or the future. That's a great question. So, um, I certainly imagination is one of the major fuels of anxiety, and I think some of the treatments for anxiety involve um, redirecting your imagination to things that are less upsetting. Um, but let me ask you this, because I think you know a lot more about anxiety and depression than I do. Are the f- when you're having an episode of depression or anxiety, is there increased cortical? like a frontal lobe activity or can you just sort of have a anxiety or de- and depression without it being directed toward anything you're imagining? Uh, those are two kind of different questions. Yeah, they um, are different questions. Yeah. yeah. Do you know the answer to either one? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do know that depression is marked by hypoactivity in parts of the prefrontal cortex. And I, I even think it's lateralized. So Mm. I can't remember offhand if it's right. So that means that it's less active. Yeah, yeah. Um, In anxiety, you do get heightened cortical activity in the prefrontal cortex. um, And you can imagine this also in OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, right? They're like obsessively thinking about washing their hands because they're dirty. Um, Mm. Yeah, so really any, uh, many of the psychiatric disorders involve some uh, some change in the activity of the prefrontal cortex. Even addiction, right, is characterized by loss of control um, of the prefrontal cortex to inhibit those lower brain regions um, so that somebody, individuals are more compelled to, you know, seek out drug or food or sex, even though your prefrontal cortex is like, no, it's probably not good for you, right? So right. Uh, sometimes you get hypoactivity sometimes you get hyperactivity i don't think it's as um well established as it's all every depressive episode or every anxious episode or you know like it, it, it to some extent it depends on the context yeah and symptoms right so depression we know is is highly um uh symptomatologically that is a big word you can have lot. You can have depression and experience it quite differently. Like you can be feeling right. very blunted in affect. You can feel slowness of your limbs, or you can feel very agitated. Right. So each of these different right. symptoms can relate to different um, states of the brain. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So like the, what we call anxiety might be a, an umbrella term for um, different. Mm different processes going on in your head that are all similar in that you're feeling miserable, 
but they might you might be miserable for different reasons, right? So I I've known yeah. people who have been depressed, and you ask them what they're depressed about, and they say, "There's nothing for me to be depressed about. I'm just depressed." Mm. And, and then other people who are temporarily depressed, maybe that doesn't count. Like after someone close to them passes away, and if they're distracted, they're fine. And mm-hmm. then as soon as they're reminded, they go back to it. So. Uh, all that, getting back yeah. to animals. Get, let's get back to, to non-human animals. <laughs> Non-humans, right? So mm-hmm. um, we don't really know for sure about animals engaging in imagination. We've, we're just beginning to uncover evidence about uh, certain animals, non-human animals, having episodic memory. Uh, so episodic memory is the ability to imagine specific, or I'm sorry, it's ability to remember specific episodes in your life, things that have happened to you. Um, and we think that some crows have them, uh, but really our evidence is pretty scarce for animals in general. Hmm. Um, it is also thought that episodic memory is mm, important or necessary for imagination in general. Now, on the other hand, it seems pretty clear that mm, dogs are dreaming <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when you you know you see them sleeping and they they're they're making little barking noises and their feet are. Uh, jerking like they're running or something. It's it's very easy for us to attribute to them that they're dreaming, which would be a kind of imagination. Um, but relevant to your question, you know, uh, you know about anxiety and depression. So animals certainly can feel distress in certain environments. I mean, they can be conditioned, right? So the question is, like, you know, if they're around um, a dangerous entity, let's say a dog is around a bigger dog that they've been attacked buy before or something like that. They might feel distressed. They might not know exactly why. And that distress might not be because they are remembering a particular incident of being attacked or uh, they are imagining being attacked in a worse way. Uh, You can still feel distress without imagination. So you might have, our listeners might have experienced this if you ever like are around somebody and you're kind of uncomfortable. You don't really know why. Uh, and it's not because you're imagining anything in particular. You just have this vague feeling of discomfort or the opposite. Like I've um, met people who just reminded me of people I've cared about in the past because they look similar and I just find myself like trusting them for no good reason. <laughs> hmm. um, but I might not put it together. Like, oh, that's because it looked like this this person. Oh, and I only figured out later, you know, so it's not um, required there. So I think that animals are generally freed of a lot of the anxieties that people have because they're uh, in the Mm -hmm. moment uh, and they don't, they can't imagine possible futures. uh, But, uh, you know, they also can't use imagination to, you know, relieve themselves of it. So um, you might say they're, yeah, go go ahead. No, I just, I, I do think when you said you don't think that they can imagine possible futures, I know Nikki Clayton at Cambridge, she works with um, corvids, species of crows, and she's designed experiments to show that they can actually, if they are hiding food and they see another conspecific uh, that is watching them where they've hidden their food, they will dig it up and hide it somewhere else because they, I would, and I would argue the interpretation of that is that they've imagined knowing that that conspecific will then in the future come back and dig up that food and steal it from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's possible that 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 crows and other corvids yeah. suffer from anxiety disorders like we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I've heard of um, friends, you have a dog, um, who's like when they go away on holidays, they like chew their fur. And there's like, I, I don't know if that's anxious 
Yeah, I don't. You're right. I think it is distress. I think they may well. They're 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 like my owner's not here. My owner's not here. I don't think they're like my owner's never coming back. I don't know. You know what I mean? I think there is a difference, and I, I'm you know I'm not. They might not even. They might not even be thinking my owner's not here. They just might be feeling terrible and not know why. Eh, we don't know. Oh my god. We just don't know. Animal cognition is so fascinating, everybody. It is. Let's do a whole episode on star-nosed moles, please. <laughs> I'm going to say yes, uh, and then hope you forget about it in the future. Okay. No. So, Are star-nosed moles psychologically interesting? Oh, my God. They're fascinating. They have, like a, like, a nose that looks like a hand but acts like an eye. They've got a giant sensory motor cortex. Anyway, I could go on. All right. We're not going to call the episode star-nosed moles. It'll be like a Trojan horse. We'll be like, yes. this, is about, this is about puppies and sloths, but then we'll spend, like, two <laughs> sentences on puppies and sloths and talk the rest of the time about star-nosed moles. Okay. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back back to imagination. So, you know, it like we we've talked on our podcast occasionally about mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Do you think um the reason why mindfulness is helpful is it about because you're focused on the here and now and you're not kind of mind worrying to the future, the past, right? Yeah, I think what so. Think? And the general idea behind mindfulness is that you, you're you paying attention to your uh, immediate environment, your mental environment, and your physical environment. And specifically, you're not thinking about the past and the future. So that mental time travel you were talking about earlier, most of the stuff I've read about mindfulness says that you really shouldn't um, think about the past and the future very much. Or if you do think about it, you shouldn't latch on to it, right? Uh, and the justification that the Buddhists give anyway is that, you know, you're thinking about things that aren't real, right? Like you're supposed to focus on what's uh, what's real and like the things that might happen. Mm. Or, you know, even the past is kind of an illusion. It doesn't exist anymore, right? Um, so, you know, and, and generally if you, you know, if you get are anxious about the future, focusing on the present moment can, you know, relieve you from some of that anxiety uh, because you're not thinking about like scary futures. So I I am a fan of mindfulness. I do think it can be quite beneficial. Not you know I'm not saying this because I'm I practice it regularly. I do not. I mm. wish you know I, we've talked about this. I wish I could cultivate more of a habit to do so. But I do think it has benefit. Um, yeah. Do you? What do you think? You know, I think that it's generally pretty good. But I I think that trying to be in the present moment all the time isn't good either. Uh, sometimes thinking about the future. Uh, can make you happier. Mm. Mm. Like uh, you can, uh, let's say you're anticipating a vacation, right? So they've done studies. They studied this. They had people have some great experience like going on vacation and they manipulated whether people knew they were going to have a great experience or not ahead of time, right? So is it a surprise uh, and they just get a vacation or do they get to anticipate it? And the people who knew that they had something good coming up, they were a little bit happier, um, before the event, and overall, they had more happiness uh, than the um, than the people who didn't expect it. So, you know, people, some people like surprise birthday parties, and they're kind of fun. The surprise is great, but you know, the evidence suggests that in general, uh, when people get to anticipate something good, they actually get overall more pleasure out of the entire thing because they enjoy the anticipation of it coming. But like you said earlier, it, it might also get your like you were talking about my holiday fantasizing you might get your expectations up too high like what if i'm imagining this like incredible resort and i get there and it's like a ramshackle right or or somebody's like waiting all month 
for a new podcast episode because it's going to be so amazing. <gasps> and, and then they listen to it and it's just star nose moles the whole time. It's just star nose moles. <laughs> so from my life, uh, I like when it comes to holidays, for example, I don't let myself get too excited about like Christmas or my birthday um, because I find I just see in people around me that they 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 just they just are like hoping and and expecting that this is going to be the greatest day in the world. But you know, you got to take a shower and do all <laughs> to mm. clean the dishes. Like it's very. I just expect it to be like as good as a decent day and maybe a little bit better. And if anything great happens, I'm surprised um, because I think that in certain situations it's really easy to get your hopes up, right? So having low expectations can be beneficial. And I think it's just you just got to be reflective about. You know, when do I tend to build something up too much in my head and, uh, you yeah. know, and and when not, right? This is why I hate New Year's. I've always hated New Year's. I always think it's like, a, like it's always just, everybody makes a big deal of it and it's like, ah. Eh. And I personally hate my birthdays because I think for so many years I had my expectations high and it would be womp womp. So I, I think I need to somehow come back to, to center and just have neutral expectations. Well, yeah, I think like having what you just said, like, you know, you've come to, you know, not like your birthday, you know, expect your birthday is going to be pretty boring and disappointing. And then, you know, and then maybe you'll be delighted. Magical happens. <laughs> maybe I'll get a yeah. surprise sloth delivered to my home. See, now you're not supposed to think about that. Okay. Because that... <laughs> okay, okay. No. <laughs> if you think about, oh, maybe I'll get a surprise sloth or a star-nosed mole. <laughs> All the animals, just <laughs> any animal will do, a hedgehog even. Okay. All right. So I think, you know, what I'm hearing from you, and this is why I love recording these episodes with you, because I learn, is it looks like you're, you can use your imagination either to make you happy or sad, and that really does depend on how you use it, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So it's good to have gratitude. It's sometimes good to think about how your life, well, I think we've talked in the past about like downward... Um, downward comparisons, comparisons yeah. right? Like you've, you've told me before how you, you can imagine your life to be worse than it is like, oh, you know, which I think a lot of us actually do sometimes in the era of COVID, like we could imagine like, you know, we've lost, I've lost my parents, like, oh, heaven forbid, but you can think about this thing, um, this, in this scenario, but not if you identify too strongly with that, right? Yeah, yeah, right. So, yeah, we I think we've talked about it before. Yeah. And it, it's it, if you think I'm really grateful my parents are still alive, then that's gratitude. If you think, oh, my yeah. God, yeah, yeah, I could be next, then, then yeah, because I think that could like go really bad. Yeah. And then it's OK to think about the future if it's something good, but not getting your expectations up too high. So, yeah, I don't. It sounds a bit complicated, but that's the brain. Yeah. That's the mind, it, right? And it is. And um, and I think that having. The expectation that your imagination is just always going to be good for you is um, a recipe for, you know, abuse of it, right? So I think it's important to reflect on your use of imagination and how it's affecting your mood, for example, so or, or your productivity or, or, your, or whatever. And if you find yourself worrying about the future, if you find yourself going over things in the past that tick you off and, uh, like, I feel like I could write an entire a boring book called every you know all the times i was right and like you know <laughs> mm, <laughs> about mm. how some person was wrong and i was right um mm -hmm. you know and i can like go over those and it'll just get me angry and uh whatever <laughs> but you know if you're reflective about how you're using your imagination uh you can direct it so that it uh helps you and 
where can our listeners go if they would like to read or find out more about this topic? Well, I uh, learned, I know all about this because of a book I wrote on imagination. It came out in 2019. It's called Imagination, the Science of Your Mind's Greatest Power. And you can get it at bookstores. But if you want to listen to it free, you can just get it on Spotify. Jim, I am imagining this episode ending. No! Oh, downward comparison! I've got anxiety! Here comes the ending! Ah! <laughs> Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and made possible, in part, by the internet, transmitting our podcast to your ears using nothing but ones and zeros. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.